Father, we just ask now that you guide us through this text. It is not an easy one, and so I just ask for clarity as I teach, and thank you again for these men. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're walking through Philippians. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I don't don't know if you remember the game when you were a kid. You had so much time to put those little pegs into a board. If you remember, it was called perfection, right? I hated that game. Uh, Now I could never play it with arthritis and my eyesight and the fear of having a heart attack. There's no way I would touch this game. But perfection was the name of the game. And uh, perfection is what Paul is going to talk about in this passage. This is not an easy text. Uh, if uh, you study the Greek of Philippians 3, 12 through 21, you're going to pull your hair out as I did this past week. It's, it's, not, it's not as clean and neat as normally Paul writes. I'm going, what in the world? So bear with me. I'm going to give you Hoffman's view on a few sections here as we dive into the text. But turn to verse 12 of chapter 3. Well, let me paint the scene for you just to recall, and we have some who've joined us uh, Chapter, if you go all the way back to chapter one, Paul's writing to a group of believers he knows well. He is, they are dear to him and he's dear to them. This isn't like the church at Corinth where there's some real division and a little animosity towards Paul in some of the groups. Or Galatia, the church is there in that region that there's a whole host of matters. This is a church that's very close. In fact, we mentioned this is almost like a missionary a letter. He's thanking them for their support. He, he expresses the love for them, talks about the gospel. But there is a need, obviously, to rally the troops. And when we get to chapter 2, he calls for unity and love among the saints. Chapter 3, he starts to deal with some of the adversity that the congregation is facing. And that is, there's a group who's boasting about, I do X, Y, and Z, so I'm spiritual. Paul says, wait a minute, you want to boast? Let me talk about all the things I've done. And we dealt with that last week, and, and all that I am, or was, being Jew, etc., or in the right tribe and all that. And he says, you know, none of this matters. I just want to know him. Well, you can almost anticipate where he thinks the congregation is going, and, and that is, well, if, if that's true, you know him, and I don't, there could be that discouragement in the Christian life, Right? Always said, if you figured out the Christian life, write a book to help us all. Uh, and, and that's kind of, is, is that what you're saying, Paul? You also have another group over here who have been boasting in, I've been circumcised on the eighth day, I've done all these X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> and you can just hear them say when Paul says, I want to know him. Yeah, we know him. We've attained that, right? It's like two little kids in a playground. Uh, I've, I've done that. Right? You can sense that. And he, that's where he's going with this, starting in verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained this. And you're going, what is the this? We'll get to that in a minute. And I'm reading out of the Net Bible. Um, <clears throat> some of you have different versions, and it will be worded differently, because again, the grammar is very complex here. That is, I have not already been perfected. There's that word perfection. But I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Wait a minute, I just heard that. That's right, he's repeating it. He's he's assuring his audience that I'm not there. And 
and he says, in fact, he says, I am single-minded, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead. He's using athletic imagery here in the text. With this goal in mind, I strive towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect, and I think he's dripping with irony here. He's taking a little mick at the uh, other group. Well, those who think they're perfect, right, embrace this point of view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. (laughs) I love that. Well, the Lord will sort it out for you. He says, nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we've already attained. Be imitators of me, which seems so arrogant, right? We'll get to that in a minute, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. For many live about whom I've often told you, and now with tears, I tell you, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. All right, so there's a group. You've got the congregation, you have Paul and his entourage, and there's this other group who are attacking the church. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they exult in their shame, and they think about earthly things. But our citizenship, here it is, is in heaven, and we await a Savior. That term is only used twice in all of Paul's writings, Ephesians and here. He says, we await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of power by which He's able to subject all things to Himself. I believe He's giving us two words here in this text. The first is going to be one of a word of caution. And this is this idea, uh, I've not perfected this, so don't think that I've obtained this Uh, And again, the this is debated, and I've given you there in that rather large paragraph with verse 12 of the notes, some have proposed that that, that this or that prize is what comes at the end of the race, or he's talking about the resurrection, or he's talking about God's righteousness. I don't think so. I think it hinges back to what he's already talked about, and that is to know Christ, Right? I mean, look, go back, look at the text in verse 10. My aim is to what? Know him. And he said that already in verse 8. And so he says, my desire is to know Christ, which is loaded. And we talked about that last week, all the implications of that. That isn't just a head knowledge, right? You're talking about intimacy here with the Lord. That's what drives Paul. And he says, this is what I seek to do. And he says, listen, this sucker, it's a lifetime inquiry. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm still in the process of doing this. Hawthorne in his commentary on Philippians <clears throat> states concerning this, to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry. Right? I remember studying with Otto Betts at Tubingen. He was in his 80s. I think I've mentioned him before. He loved the Lord. Theologically, we may not cross our T's everywhere he crosses them and dots them exactly where he dots them. He was saved as a prisoner of war in World War II. And uh, he was in his 80s. He was translating the Talmud, which is 30-some volumes in Aramaic, to Greek for fun when I would meet with him. But we were sitting and we were looking at a text in uh, 1 Kings in the Hebrew, and he goes, I'm not sure I know what this means. He's, oh, I wish I understood this. (laughs) 
And then he goes, what do you think? I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> You're the scholar. You know? But here's a man further in the Word. And, and the longer I live, those men that I have had the privilege of rubbing elbows with who have who've been in the, in the text, there's a humility of an understanding. There's so much here I don't know. Charles Ryrie, we would meet weekly. He said the same thing. I, I, I just, there's so much here. I just don't grasp, and I want to know. That's what Paul's saying here, right? I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the fellow who said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? I studied with the best. So when it comes to knowing the Old Testament, Paul knew it well, very well. And he knew the things of the Lord. I mean, after all, Christ himself appeared to, to, to Saul slash Paul. And he says, there's so much here that I still want to grasp and understand. He says, I'm not there yet. I don't know about you, but I find that greatly comforting, right? I think that's what Paul's trying to say to the church. It's okay that you don't, we're we're in a process here. In Paul's language through this section, especially verses 12 through 16, becomes very personal. It becomes emphatic and very intense. And we know that by the layout. I mean, even... Even uh, in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I, the I is emphatic. Uh, He's, whoo, I am the one who's still trying to get this right. So it's going to counter these folks that are standing over here, these these legalists, these who do X, Y, and Z saying, you know what, we're spiritual, we got it together. Paul says, wow, I don't. (laughs) You know, I'm not there. And so he uses this athletic imagery here. And notice what he says in verse 13. There's two things that he's doing in light of the goal, right? The goal is to know Christ. He says, there's two things I'm doing as an athlete. And he uses that imagery, which would have been very prevalent in the day. He says, first of all, I am not dwelling in the past. Why would you not dwell in the past? You can't do anything about it. What do we know about, what did Paul just rehearse in chapter 3 about his past? It didn't do him any good. I mean, he had everything the world, a first century Jew, would ever want. This is, it didn't matter. In fact, it was a liability. Remember that? So what that I was born in a very wealthy family, had Roman citizenship, studied on the right, you know, uh, studied with the, the Ivy League of the day, with the best scholars of the day. It was, it was all a liability, right? What else? <clears throat> Yep, God's sovereignty. You could dwell in guilt if there's like a Peter's past, right? Or there could be arrogance. Look at what I have done, and you rest in that. He goes, none of that's going to matter. Yeah. And also dwelling in the past with that arrogance, you feel like there's nothing more to be done. You're, you're good. So why worry about it? Yeah, and that's where he's going with this. Uh, so... He said, that doesn't matter. In, in fact, what I do, he states, is I focus on the future. Right? Look what he says. Don't take my word for it. Look what he says in the text. He says, for the things that are ahead, with the goal for this prize of this upward call. Right? And I mentioned there in your notes, this vision of this race. And, and going into page two, then the question we need to ask is, what is the upward call? Yeah.
Yeah, and, and that's a good point. In the context here, though, um, I think elsewhere you could argue Paul does look to the past as a, an opportunity to reflect on what the Lord has done, etc. But here he's talking about all of these things that we could boast about, all of these things that we could latch on to. He says, our focus needs to be this way, not, oh, look at all the things that have ha- occurred to me in the past and wonderful I am. Um, so in the immediate context, I think that's what we're dealing with, but you're right. In the grand scheme of theology, uh, stones of remembrance are v- vital. And, and we've seen that already in Paul's other writings, and Peter talks about it as well, that we don't miss that. Yeah, Kyle. And the imagery here is clear with the racing, you're right, because uh, the term he uses about not turning around is what you don't want to do as a runner. I'm, I'm not a runner. That might surprise you. Um, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Uh, we're done. Uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but the idea is that you're not distracted. You're, you're focused here. And so the context is all of that. But I'm not nullifying an Orwood Paul. Uh, so thank you for balancing us out theologically. So what is the upward call? What, what is he addressing? And scholars love to debate this. There are three major views. One is he's talking about his residence in heaven, and he's looking for, to the future abode. And as I mentioned in, in your, your uh, notes there, and, and what Paul's going to address with the enemies of the cross is that they're focusing on the here and now and not on the future, Right? just talked to one of you before we started and said, you know, my mom passed away. And he said, but it's great because she's with the Lord, right? And, and that's where we're headed. <laughs> uh, I didn't need to tell you that. But the false teachers or those who are attacking the church are saying, you know what, let's focus on what we're doing here. Others say, no, 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 the upward call is Christ himself. Opportunity to embrace him, to be with him. And you can see that uh, this fits with the analogy because the runner, when, if they won the prize, they would go forward to receive it. And the idea is, well, this is what we're getting here, that he's being summoned forward by the emperor, that is Christ. Uh, the third view is where I land. And yes, it's Christ. Yes, it's the home. But I think it entails all of this, the, all of the eternal blessings that come with an everlasting life. And, and I mentioned that there in your notes, that the grand prize is more general in nature. And it tells not only Christ but also the eternal life. I mean, remember what he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's what I'm looking to. All right? That's where we're headed. One commentator notes, uh, this is there on page two, Hendrickson states that the goal and the prize both indicate perfection in Christ. Perfection here? No way. Perfection there? Yes. He says, however, the former is viewed as the object of human striving and focuses on the race, that is the goal that is being run, while the latter, the prize, is understood as the gift of God's sovereign grace. And I, I liked how he tied that together. So Paul's saying to this group, 
many are his followers, and they're tracking with him. He's saying, don't get discouraged. We're in this, and perfection is on that side of eternity. To another group who says they've reached the here and now, the frozen chosen, he's saying, wait a minute, careful. You've, you've missed all of this. And, uh, and he's going to flesh this out a little bit later here. But he says in humility in verse 15, he says, you know, and I think there's irony laced here. Some scholars don't think so. But I, I think he's saying perfection in Christ. And I loved this comic, by the way. It says, you probably can't read it in the back. It says, then one day I stopped trying to be perfect. They're, they're all in prison, right? <clears throat> he's saying, you know, those of you who think you're perfect, you got it all together. He says, careful, because it's an ongoing process. He reiterates that. And he includes himself in all of this. So he says, to those who think they're perfect with that dripping with irony, he says, you need to embrace what I'm telling you. Uh, don't think you've reached it. And I love how he just lets the Lord will deal with you. You know, I, I'm not here to theologically debate, right? Careful with those. You know what I'm talking about. Um, David? Yeah. I remember something. Oh dear. <laughs> yes. His whole motivation is based on his eschatology. Yeah. And I remember you saying, and I never heard that term before, and you were referring to the beating seat of Christ. But, you know, I mean, this is just dripping with that. You know, when, when you, his whole motivation, unlike mine, it was for the here and now, even as a Christian, he really is focused on that, as you said, eschatology goal. And the, I remember you saying that. I it's true the whole New Testament. The ethics of the New Testament is driven by eschatology, right? I think I've always, I've mentioned this several times. My grandmother used to say, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord comes back. Well, that's our eschatology driving. This is why we do what we do, right? It's rooted in Christology, in Christ, but it's driven by our study of the end times and knowing what's, what's going to occur. Um, I love, folk, well, that's, I'll go down a rabbit trail. Uh, but yeah, uh, eschatology is important. And, uh, you know, people say, well, I don't want to say that because it's very divisive. Well, it's interesting because Christ often talks about the end. And, and the only book in the entire canon with the blessing is Revelation, right? Uh, it's, it's the end game. Thank goodness, right? <laughs> True. In verse 15 of your notes, I quote uh, an early church father. He says, it is the mark of the perfect man not to reckon himself perfect. You can think about that. Um, but that's what Paul is saying. And, and I love that he doesn't, he doesn't get into an argument with the, these guys here in verse 15. He's not there to do that. And I, I've, I think there's some real wisdom in that. It's throwing pearls before swine. You know what I'm talking about, these people who want to debate theology and are argumentative. I, I don't have time for that. Uh, go, go, do, go do what you need to do. Uh, there's a world lost, they need Christ. And, 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 and Paul's saying, listen, let's not get into that. In fact, he says, and I love what he states in verse 16, he said, let's that's, that's rally around together what we do know, right? Let's serve Christ in this regard. And, and that's what he's saying in verse 16. So that's the word of caution, but then it comes the word of encouragement, which I love, and it's, it's maybe not the best term for this, 
because he's going to go after the enemies of the cross here in a minute. But he says, be imitators of me. And there are some scholars who's lost a lot of sleep over this. They're going, wait a minute, that's arrogance. He's just, you know, he's pointed everyone to Christ. And that seems to contradict what he says in chapter 2. And so some have argued that's this is what he means. Let me give you three proposals. One is it's an admonition to submit to apostolic authority. That's all he's talking about. When he says, imitate me, it means you, you need to adhere to what I'm saying, right? His, his feathers come out like a peacock, and this is who I am. Don't cross the line. <clears throat> that doesn't fit at all with Philippians. <laughs> if anything, there's one of great humility and camaraderie in the gospel. If this was Philippians, or, uh, Corinthians, all right, I might buy that, where he's defending his apostleship, etc., uh, and going for the juggler. And that's not how to take these words. A second idea is that it's, it's a collective idea. Corporately, we come together and we are to imitate Christ. So join me in this process. Again, that doesn't seem to fit with the context either. I think he's truly stating, you need to follow my example. All right. Now, let me clarify that, and I think understanding the following will help us see, no, he's not, it's not out of arrogance he makes the statement. At the bottom of the page, I, I note Paul already highlighted that Christ is the ultimate role model, right? He said, there's Christ, and I'm, I'm modeling myself after him. <clears throat> Second, he, he's already told us he's not perfect, Right? So he knows that, follow me, but, you know, I, I'm still working, striving for this. So there's an idea of my perseverance, my passion to, to follow Christ, that's what I want you to follow. Uh, he knows he's got his own warts uh, in the spiritual life. And then number three there, he's already told us to follow others. Who else has he mentioned that we need to follow as the, to the readers? Who did he mention earlier? There's Christ, and he gave us two role models as well to the church, little Timothy and Epaphroditus, right? He says, go after them. And notice what he says in the text here in verse 17. <clears throat> Just as you have me? No, it's plural, us. Who's he referring to? I think he's referring to Luke, who's not mentioned. That's Hophaedus' theory. But you got Timothy and Epaphroditus. So he says, look at this entourage you have. Follow us in our example, all right? And then finally, Paul's life serves as a great contrast to those who are serving as poor role models. Uh, Paul's saying, hey, don't look to this group over here. Keep your eyes on me and what I'm trying to teach you to do, right? So I don't think, he's already told us he's not, he's not the, <laughs> attained this, but he, he's hoping that in so doing, you will follow accordingly. Questions on that? Because that's huge. That's great, created some gas for folks. How did the Philippians feel about this? They, were they taking it as arrogance, or were, were they truly gaining the knowledge that uh, he's talking about Christ? Well, we don't have the church's response to this letter, but based upon how they've been responding to Paul, I am sure they understood the spirit of it, etc. I find uh, I can't imagine otherwise. Because they've already, they've rallied around him. They, have, they love Paul, right? I mean, they've, they've given money. They've given their top leader, Epaphroditus, or one of their top leaders. So there's huge support for him. 
Now, he then says in verses 18 and 19, for many live with whom I about told, and notice he says with tears. This isn't, he's not lashing out. It's one out of hurt that we have some enemies of the cross. And he describes them in the following. He says they're in this destruction. I love this. He says, we're looking to the goal of Christ. Their end, it's a dead end, right? The term is clear. He's dealing with eternal judgment. He says, secondly, the God is their bellies. <laughs> now, there's a lot of renderings here. Um, we know that the Jews in the first century loved their kosher food, right? Even today, good luck finding bacon in Israel. It's a real bummer. I tell my wife when I get back, the she, first thing she does is fry us up about a pound and a half of bacon. So, um, I know, it's not good, but I love it. All right, <clears throat> we're going to have it in heaven, so you might as well enjoy it now. So, they have all these rules and regulations about food and, and all of this. And he says, you know what? That's become their idol. They, they think they've obtained this. And he goes, they've missed the whole point. And Hawthorne says their scrupulous observance of food has become their belly god. And I think he's right. That's what he's talking about, right? So looking like Buddha. Uh, and, and also, the next one's even funnier, is they exalt in their shame. That term is used of nakedness, and I think he's playing off of circumcision. You're going around requiring everyone to reveal themselves and be circumcised. He goes, you want to talk about shame? That's shame. It's not the cross. Hebrews, remember Hebrews 8, uh, the cross is a shame uh, to, to the world. But he goes, no, 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 what you're doing, you boast in circumcision. It's shameful. And then finally, he says, and here's the point, you, you are obsessed with all the religious practices of the day, etc. You're boasting in X, Y, and Z, and you've missed the cross. And this is why you're an enemy, because you've added to what Christ has accomplished, and thus you've undone what He did for us. Right? He says, and then he makes this great contrast in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. You're an enemy of the state of heaven, <laughs> you who do these things, but we belong. And, and I love the term he uses. Remember our city, Philippi, it's made up, it's a Roman colony. Remember that? A very prominent one. In fact, you can't see this coin very well. This is a familiar coin that was minted in Philippi in the first century. It's two oxen that are plowing. In other words, it's this establishment of the city is a Roman colony. And then this is a picture of Augustus, who, as we know, is like God, called Savior, Soter, or often referred to as Lord. And what Paul is saying is, your citizenship, this term is key, it's used of, of a a citizen of a colony, the rights and privileges and benefits and all of that, and, and the duties that thus you are expected to give to the colony. He says, our citizenship is, is far greater. It's in heaven. And our soter is not the emperor here on earth. It is the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? It's Christ. So they can boast all they want. <laughs> They're missing the mark. And in fact, they're enemies of the state of heaven because our citizenship is here. And I love what he says. Again, his eschatology is coming forth. We await our Savior from there. Who? He doesn't end there. Verse 21, will transform these humble bodies. Remember what he said about Christ in the Philippians 2 passage? 
Christ left that pre-incarnate glory. He humbled himself taking on human form, right? That's how he humbled himself, by the way. It's a participle of means, by taking on human form. We have a humble body, but there's a day coming when we're going to be transformed into glorious bodies. Woohoo! right? This is what it's about. And, and by means of that power by which he's able to subject all things to himself. This is why he said, notice, remember what he, what he stated in verse 10? I want to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in the death. And so somehow, and again, we talked about that, that means the means. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to happen, but I know I'll attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what I'm looking to, right? That's where we're headed. And so why would you be focused on these things? You think you're perfect. You've missed it. This is the perfection we're looking to, to the end. A glorious body, right? Well, no wonder he says to die is gain, right? For me to live is Christ. Man, what I have to wait. Well, let me give you three things to hang on your beak as we wrap this up. First of all, legalism. By the way, how do you define legalism? It's not the presence of rules. Otherwise, McDonald is legalistic, right? If you work at McDonald's, I think they have rules uh, about how you should dress, what you should do, uh, all right? <clears throat> it's not the presence of rules. What is legalism? Context. Yes. What else? Yeah, let me give it to you. It's rules plus attitude. That's legalism. It's that understanding if I do X, Y, Z, I am more spiritual. I am more in tune with the Lord. And the problem with legalism is I state there in your notes as well as narcissism. <laughs> if you don't, want, you don't know what that means, it means arrogance. My wife as a counselor said that's uh, such a joy to work with narcissists. <laughs> they never have a problem. Everyone else does, right? Legalism and narcissism, for that matter, deceive the soul into thinking that he is capable of living the spiritual life on his own accord, right? That's the problem with legalism. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2? Turn, turn to this text. <clears throat> Galatians does not read like Philippians. <laughs> Paul is honking mad in this letter. <clears throat> He says in Galatians chapter, I'm sorry, 3, verse 2, he says, the only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you, well, you got to start with verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before your eyes? Jesus Christ was visibly portrayed, has crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? The problem with the church at Galatia is they've bought into this line that I have to do X, Y, and Z to win God's favor after they've already accepted the gospel, right? Why are we so susceptible to legalism? Common ground? Pride? Satan's first deception? It appeals to the human soul, right? I got to do X, Y, and Z in order to, you know, if someone gives you a really nice gift, you, you feel like you have to do something in return. Uh, uh, there's just all of that that's going on here. <clears throat> Remember, we talked about this last week. You cannot earn God's love. He already loves you as much as He could possibly love you. Read Ephesians 1. Think about that for a minute. So why are you doing what you do in the spiritual life? 
And Paul says, careful. We do it because we love him, not so we can earn his favor. And, and the problem with legalism is that issue, and that is attitude. I used to teach at a Christian university, and I used to say, oh, this is such a legalistic place. And you, you, you probe, well, why do you think it's so legalistic? And say, well, you know, you have to have a dress code, and you can't do this, you can't. I said, that doesn't make us legalistic. What's legalistic is the attitude. If you think that you're more spiritual because you do these things, now we got a problem. Right? And that's the whole issue of Galatia. Uh, but <clears throat> second, let me give you another. And that is, the growth in the spiritual life does not come through inactivity, a mediocre lifestyle, or a carefree attitude. <laughs> you're not going to get this by osmosis. You can't put the Bible under your pillow and think it's just going to come. Right? That's why you're here at 7 o'clock in the morning. Because you're wanting to dig deeper and keep it up. Right? You want to rub elbows with other men who are in this battle together because it says, indeed, spiritual vitality calls for action, passion, and determined attitude. You're not going to win victory over a sin by just hoping that maybe down the road it's going to go away. <laughs> right? And George can tell you, you know, overcoming uh, as he ministers to those guys that are struggling with sexual sins, it, it, it just doesn't you got to work at it. You want a good marriage? You got to work at it. You know, just telling your wife you love her and you never do anything for her is not going to cut it. <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> I don't always get it right, but that's, we're, we're, we're striving, we're, we're, we're trying to attain. And that's what Romans 12 talks about. You've got to be on the offensive in this game or you are not going to win. Right, I love uh, my son's doing basketball uh, with uh, Jimmy and 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 I don't see Tom today. He's dogging us, uh, but with the guys at IBA and um, Jimmy says, "Hey, keep your eyes on me. I, I you need to be focused here. What are you doing? Stop talking." You know, he's, he's telling these guys, and that that's the idea. You know, Paul says, I, "I'm not looking around, distracted. I am single-minded in what needs to be accomplished." And third. A flawed widget cannot serve as a prototype, is what I wrote in your notes. <clears throat> to serve as a role model for godliness, I mean, think about it. Can you tell a group of believers, imitate me? I said, a, a role model has to be actively pursuing Christ with the whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're not asking you to be perfect. What we are asking is you be sold out to Christ. The, the challenge for this week is down there under for further thought. <clears throat> I said, uh, could you tell a group of Christians to imitate your spiritual walk? Would the church be healthier if the saints look like you? Right? Owie. Well, it's, it's something to think about, right? Would the church be healthier? Or the, those that you're involved with, a small group or whatever, guys you're discipling, if they all started looking like you... How would it be? I think the scariest thing is when I see my son and he says something or does something that reminds me of me. And I'm like, <clears throat> sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not so good. You know? Now watch your temper. He said the other day, he goes, well, you, you don't always. I said, quiet, son. Right? <laughs> Who asked you? I'm the daddy. <clears throat> right? Single-minded. As Paul states here, I, he says, I do not consider myself to obtain this. 
Instead, I am single-minded, focusing towards the prize of the upward calling, right? That is my prayer for all of us. And if uh, some, do an inventory this week. What are some areas that you need to work on that might be a problem if someone started imitating you? <laughs> some things we need to strip ourselves of. Questions? Comments? <clears throat> yes. Um, Gary. This lesson just really hit home with me quite a bit. And uh, point B on the last page, I participated in an athletic competition last month in Utah. And the governor of Utah opened the opening ceremonies by saying, we don't grow, we don't quit playing because we grow old. We grow old because we quit playing. And I also substitute prayer or seeking God. Hmm. Yep, yeah, my dear friend Charles Ryrie at 87, we were talking, he said there's no retirement in the Lord's work, right? Father, <clears throat> we got a goal set before us, and it's your son. <laughs> oh, we long to be with him. We long to be perfect in Christ, in your midst, dwelling in all eternity with the saints before your throne. In the process, we got a journey ahead of us. And uh, as Paul highlighted here, no, we're not perfect. Uh, we are seeking to become more like your son. And in that process, Lord, we ask for strength. We ask for ability. Thank you for the spirit that's moving in and through us. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, like Paul, we can tell those around us, imitate me. Um, this is where I'm headed. Join me in that journey. Lord, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.